What are you doing with Jesus? Because all of us are doing something with him. All of us are responding to Jesus. We were responding to Jesus in song this morning. Between the music and the cold weather outside, I saw some of you who've never moved in this room move today. Your foot was bopping. You were just trying to break a sweat. I understand. Some friends of mine at churches in Tennessee and, and Georgia, they canceled their services today because of snow. And I thought about it when I got outside this morning. <laughs> All of us are responding to Jesus. I've been preaching for 15 years now. Teenagers and colleges, revivals, women's prayer breakfasts, bar mitzvahs. Uh, that's always awkward. I spoke at a prom one time. <laughs> Think about this. Prom night. It's at this Christian school, of course. Baptist, obviously. <laughs> They're going to have their prom dinner that night because, you know, we, we sit down and we eat our meal together and everyone's in their formal wear, including myself. Rather than having intimate dancing, they had to listen to me talk for 30 minutes. <laughs> Those poor, poor children. If you've ever preached or been in services, if you've been around rooms like this for a long time, you know that response is a very big part of our Christian conversation. It's something that we talk about all of the time. It's thing, it is something that we think about. It's something that runs through our mind. If you've ever stood in front of a room like this or sat in a room like this, which you are right now, you know due to the pragmatic nature of our society, there is an expectation as to what is to take place when all of this wraps up. If you come from a Baptist tradition... You've heard a sermon before and you have sat in a room as a preacher has done his very best job to exposit what the text says and when he concludes his exposition of the text there's this thing that's there. You've been preaching to a group of Christian people like we for the most part are and you expect there to be some type of response at the end where someone comes to the front of the room and confesses of their sin. Response is so interesting to consider. Because I definitely believe in the, the call to response, immediate response. At the end of the service today, you will have an opportunity to respond to the goodness of God and His gospel. And I want you to know, if you've never known who Jesus is, you're not going to figure that out on your own. You don't figure that out. And you won't figure it out because I'm, I am whatever you need me to be. Eloquent with words. That ain't it. I don't appreciate that. You realize that when the Spirit of God begins to impress upon you that you need Him. An immediate response. And some of you are believers in this room and you need to immediately respond to the message of Jesus. He's calling you to something. He's asking you to do something that you were not doing yesterday. There's also the idea of intermediate response. That between now and the next time that we gather together... You would be thinking through what it means for you to think through being a believer in Jesus and what you're supposed to do as you respond to Him. That's why we push you towards life groups. That's why we are setting in place discipleship groups so that we are always having this conversation among believers in circles rather than rows about what it means to Jesus because all of us are responding to Jesus. We want to respond to Him properly. 
There's also long-term response. What is long-term response? So you hear me preach for a long time and you hear your life group leader lead their life group and you hear your discipleship group talk about discipleship and you begin to think about what that means. What breadcrumbs have been left over 16 to 18 months where you would say, God impressed upon me that I should respond to him when X opportunity comes up because all of us are always responding. And even in this room right now, I look across the room, many of you have made professions of faith, and you need to respond to Jesus by being baptized. Well, we get a big horse trough. Now, if you think, man, I want to do this fancy, I'll send you to First Baptist, and you can have a very awkward conversation over there as to why they're baptizing members of our church. We have a horse trough that horses eat out of. Not really. We want you to be baptized. Some of you need to respond by, by rethinking through what it means to live in commitment. All of us are responding. Is it is in line with what Jesus teaches his people. So we're in Mark chapter uh, 3 this morning. And we're going to go verses 7 through 34. We will wrap up around 2.15 in the afternoon. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea. And a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowds would not crush him. Since he healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up to the mountain and he summoned those he wanted and he, to come to him. They came to him. He appointed twelve whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve to Simon. He gave the name Peter. And to James, the son of Zebedee, and, and to his brother John, he gave the names of the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also, Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they went out to restrain him, because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. And he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot, put it, he cannot stand but is finished. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder the house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That about Jesus. 
His mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent word to him and they called for him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother and your brother, your sisters, they're outside. They're asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. When we look at this passage, we see it break down wicka, wicka, like this. 7 through 12, we see that some people want to show. We see that some people just want to interact with Jesus to see the show of Jesus. We see that some are going to be shown. We see that in two places in the text. 13 through 19, 20 through 21, 31 through 35. That's three. And then we see that some want to be the show. So we get to wrestle through this text together and think through what it means and where we would find ourselves. The miracles have drawn people to Jesus and they love him There are these religious leaders who don't love Jesus because they like when the crowds love them. And for Jesus to be the center of attention means that they are not. Not only do they love Jesus, they love the spectacular things that it seems that Jesus is doing. Because he's healing people. You'll see that in verse 7. He departed with his disciples to the sea. A large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea. And it lists off all the places that the crowds were coming from. So this is not a crowd. And I don't know how you define a crowd because I know that most of you are introverts. And a crowd for you is where two or more are gathered together. This crowd is hundreds. But not just hundreds, maybe thousands. They're coming from everywhere because Jesus is doing things that no one has ever seen. He's doing miraculous things in their midst. There are places where it will use the word crush to talk about how the crowds were approaching Jesus. They were ready to see Jesus. There were cheer teams out ready. Okay, why don't you heal us today? We love Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, go Jesus. We got a miracle. Yes, we do. We got a miracle. How about you? They think Jesus is miraculous and they like the idea of spectacular things. Churches are very much like that. Do you know a sermon series that causes numbers to bump up? A sermon series on the book of Revelation. When we begin to address things that, where people want to listen and hear a fight. Jesus steps away from the crowd. Moving away. But we notice in verse 10... Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Which makes sense because they have ran, they are at the end of their rope. They have approached every primitive type of healing that their world happened to offer. They've gotten every type of medication, the best and the worst, the lowest. They've done all that they can. They have found their vitamin C. It doesn't work for them for whatever reason. So they just need someone to do something. They're crushing. For those who interacted, there were some who were healed. Not all of them were healed. Why did Jesus not just heal everybody? Because the 
goal wasn't this world. And here's the thing, for those of us who've ever watched TV where a preacher begins to heal people, I wonder at times if they've made this whole thing about themselves. Because if the goal is earthly healing, why are they not running through the halls of hospitals? But we see Jesus in this passage offering real healing because real healing really happens. He does. And if we have decided that Jesus doesn't heal, then we've decided that we don't know who the Jesus of the Bible really is. So you look at this text and you see Jesus and they're doing everything they can to touch him and they're trying to get near him. But verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. They did not sound like me because I sound like a 13-year-old boy ordering a chalupa. You are the Son of God. They're yelling this at Jesus and there are numerous things as to why people thought they would ever say this to Jesus. Some believe that they were claiming, You are the Son of God to express an authority over Jesus. Because in that world, there's a spiritual conversation that takes place. There's this belief that if you will acknowledge the power of someone, then you have power over them. That's more than likely not it. They are saying you are the Son of God, more than likely, so that people will overhear them. Because if they overhear them, then King Herod gets brought into this and nobody's heard any of this son of God business yet. And if it gets out that Jesus is calling himself the son of God and that he is okay with these royal titles at this point in the story, then Herod's not going to be happy. You're the son of God, so Jesus says shut up. And here's the weirdest thing. Jesus tells the demons to shut up and they shut up. How helpful would that be? You just tell people what to do and they do it. Go to bed. Bliss. <laughs> so Jesus goes up and he calls his disciples. He went up to the mountain and he summoned those he wanted and they came to him. We have though we are shifting from the show to those who want to be shown. Those he's going to show something. And when he calls up the disciples, let's not miss what he's doing. He is undoing the world that they happen to be live in, living in. With all of its limitations and all of its shortcomings. And he is beginning the process of making all things right and all things new. He is beginning the process of resetting the world in every way that it needs to be reset. He is speaking into the midst of the madness of that world in the same way that he speaks into the madness of this one. And he is saying, for you to align yourself with me, I'm resetting everything. I'm resetting your understanding of physical things. I'm resetting your understanding of spiritual things. I'm resetting your understanding of social things. I'm resetting even your understanding of political things. Because all of these are off and I'm the only thing that's right. I will make all things new. He appoints 12. Notice what he does. When he calls them to him... 
reminiscent of what the rest of the religious leaders of their day, the, re- the rest of those who would claim to be Messiah, he calls them up to meet him away from the crowd. He appointed twelve whom he also named disciples to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. That's a deal. You get to drive out demons. Not only do you tell the kids to go to bed, not only do I tell the kids to go to bed, you tell kids to go to bed, and they go to bed. What a miraculous thing that Jesus has done, and in so doing, he has said, these are aligned with me. He appointed the twelve. Then we get a list. And the Bible always gives us these lists. And it's different each and every time you see them in the various Gospels. But we always start with Peter. I love that. I, I love that. Because Peter failed a lot and I fail a lot. And I really like to see that Jesus leads in with him. There's a chance that you're here and maybe when you were 22 or 23 you came into some faith relationship with Jesus or maybe there's just a point in your past where you trusted in Jesus but you've made mistakes and you kind of think for whatever reason that God's done with you he's just not he's not he's not wrapped up your story if you're living and breathing we need to hear that We need to know that. Then he, to James the son of Zebedee and to his brother John, he gave them the name the Sons of Thunder. I love that. Because that's a wrestling tag team in the Bible. Masks, robes, everything. But it gives us a little bit of a picture as into Jesus picking on them. Because there's a place where they're strolling through and as they look around, they say, to, they say to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, these other people, they're casting out demons and stuff and fall down lightning on them. And Jesus says, No! You morons! That's in the message. It shows us the affection that Jesus has for people who are loudmouths who happen to walk with him. Reminding us that Jesus has an affection for you in all of your shortcomings and for me in mine. He goes through the list, these 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the thing about it is, the common thread of the 12 tribes, when you look through the Old Testament, it really came down to this. At the center was, when, when they came together, they were Israel. They were centered in Israel. Jesus resetting, reshaping, redoing everything. This Jesus, the common thread that we see here is that Jesus is at the center. Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is God's promised Messiah. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus has come to rescue and to save. Jesus is the true Israel. He says that, not just me. They revealed the the hope of the world stood in the center of these men. He is simultaneously, he is the presence of God. We see that in Mark early on. And he is the life that God points to. God in the flesh. 
Before they are sent, he calls them to share with him in this day-in, day-out grind of following after him. Not just spectacular times when he works miracles, days where they're hungry. Days where they walk through grain fields and have to grab grain and get yelled at by the people who were in charge. The day in, day out idea of following after Jesus. Are you doing that? Day in, day out following Jesus. Our Lord's, according to Oswald Chambers, our Lord's conception of discipleship is not that we work for God, but that God works through us. God's going to work through people who have aligned themselves with Him. You close the list and you've got Judas there. He's always on the list. And contrary to Peter, who is always first, Judas is always last. And he gets this tag, the one who betrayed him. And we can even see that that is used for God's redefining, resetting, revolutionary purpose. Because the kingdom of God is different. Why in the world and how in the world would God include the story of someone who would turn his back on him and allow him to be sold for silver with a kiss on the cheek? How would that contribute to God making everything right? Because it is in this death that we eventually get and see life. Any other ruler's death leads to death of a movement. But the death of Jesus is the time where he is coronated and this death leads to life. Look, sometimes we gather in places like this and we look around and we begin to think about what it means to know Jesus, think about Jesus, and we like the things that Jesus does. He's a really good example because we, for whatever reason, think that Jesus is someone who votes like we do, who looks like Bradley Cooper, and that's cool. When we read through the scriptures, if our understanding of Jesus is that we are simply to follow his example, you need to know this, because I have to remind myself of this. If I'm only following the example that Jesus sets apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, then that example crushes me. There's no hope for me in trying to do good things. I don't do good things for God. God will eventually do good things through me because I have realized what his death and resurrection actually mean. That, can, that is to be said for every believing person in this room. That we are people who are called to God by his death and resurrection and that our goodness will never be enough in and of ourselves. His death leads to life. His death leads to you and me being able to live in a way that says that we have found life and that we see this world differently than the, than the entirety of the rest of it. Verse 20. Jesus entered the house and a crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. He could go nowhere without being swarmed by people. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. He is crazy. They rolled out the banner. Intervention. We're going to find him. 
and the scribes, they come down from Jerusalem and they said, he is, he is possessed by Beelzebub. He drives out demons by demons. Beelzebub's an interesting term. It's expressed differently in the various New Testament stories. But the way that we see it in Mark, it's, this is the Lord of the filth. That's what it means. It's a word that's attached to dung, to trash heaps. He is possessed by filth. He is possessed by dung. They don't understand this Jesus other than people want to attach themselves to him. So let me put something on him where people would run away from him. He drives out demons by demons. Lord of the dung. Lord of the filth. And Jesus summoned them. I love this because they're they're at the house. There's a big crowd. Jesus has to retreat again. He goes back to this back room. He calls in the scribes who've been telling him that he's demon-possessed and telling everybody else that he's demon-possessed. And he kind of gives them a talking to. Heaven help us if we could just have a one-on-one talking to from Jesus to some people who are speaking on his behalf that don't need to be speaking on his behalf. He calls them in and says, Hey, let's talk about that demon thing. How can Satan drive out Satan? The Poe house operates in, in a very clean way. Hope Poe is the cleanest person that I know. Uh, if you... Uh, drop in, she will entertain you, but somehow, simultaneously, she's also cleaning the bathroom, just in case. It happens, it functions. We do our best to keep it clean. When you have three boys that share a bathroom, that is not the easiest thing that could ever happen. So imagine that Hope has said to me, Chad, you make sure that that bathroom is clean, because that's kind of one of my jobs. I'm good at bathrooms and laundry. And that's it. So I go in there and I'm doing the dirty work. And you know exactly what I mean. But in doing this work, the way that I attempt to do it is by bringing in more filth. Rather than me cleaning what's there, I I dump out the vacuum cleaner that has glass that I broke the other day and vacuumed up. And there's dirt and dust everywhere. Well, that's not clean. Jesus uses this point, looks at these men and said, You're saying that I'm driving out filth with filth. This is ridiculous. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Jesus is speaking here, more than likely of himself, stepping into the world that has been broken by Satan and death and hell. And he is saying, I have tied that clown up and I'm undoing everything that he's ever done because I make all things new I'm resetting this broken world are we aligning ourselves with certain things in this world that say that we are okay with whatever we have deemed as, as Satan's acceptable way of aligning the world Because if we're going to follow him, that means we follow him to the hard places, to the hard conversations, to the difficult spaces. 
Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. And here we are going to have a very short conversation about the idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because people like to talk about it in churches and everyone wonders if they've done it. And if you're wondering about if you've done it, you haven't. You just haven't. If you are concerned about this, then this is not something that you've done. Jesus, here in this passage, says that a crowd was sitting around, what well, rather, verse 28, truly, truly, this is the way it is. This is this truly, truly is the exact same word that we have in the New Testament for amen. Most people end things with amen. Jesus starts with it. This is the way it is. This is not saying this is the way that I want it to be. Jesus declares this is how it is. People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. So you step into a space like this. You're not sure if you can follow Jesus because you've done some really dumb things. And you, and you know other people who've done, done dumb things. And you're not sure if your dumb things are really, really bad. Jesus says this. Forgiveness is available. Because there wasn't a sin that I forgot about when I came to reset this mess. Forgiveness for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. This idea in this passage is the notion that we would run away from the promise of God that He's given us in Jesus. That we would turn our hearts and our backs on Him entering into the next life which will possibly be death. It's the notion that all that Jesus has said about making all things new, we would say, I'm fine with the old. I'm fine with what's broken. They were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit and the reason they were saying that is because their very eyes and their entire selves were unclean though they wanted everyone to think that they had it all together. And we as a people who claim to follow after Jesus, we must be very, very careful, regularly careful when we are correcting this person and that person and what they do and why they did it, missing the idea that by the grace of God we go. 33, rather 31. His mother and his brothers, they came to him. They were standing outside. They sent word to him, called him. Here we are. We got Mary. We got James. We got the rest of them that I don't know the names of. They rolled out the banner. They're pinning it up over the fireplace. Somebody go get Jesus. Jesus doesn't even bother with it. A crowd was sitting around him. They said, look, your mother and your brothers, your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and who are my brothers? I love the show Survivor. My favorite challenge <clears throat> is the one that takes place toward the end of a season. I've not watched in years because... There came a point to apply. I think it was 23. I love it though. There's one challenge that's really a mind game. And they go out into the ocean. And you've got the people there that are scantily clad for whatever reason. They're standing on these various poles. 
And they begin to do everything they can to get that person to jump off of the pole. Only just in your head, you're just standing on a pole. It's not a big deal until it's been an hour or two hours. But you know, you've got a mission in mind. That's a million dollars or two million or whatever they're playing for in the year of our Lord 2022. Not a big deal. Then they begin to, to tempt them. And as they attempt to tempt them, they are offering them things. And I don't know what gets you to jump off that pole. If it's a Reese's cup that you've not seen in forever, or an Oreo, or, or a pizza, or maybe it's a Chick-fil-A sandwich, which means you know that this is taking place on a Monday through Saturday. You're standing on the pole, tempted. What takes place when that spouse that you've not seen in weeks walks out there with the sandwich? Walks out there with the pizza? For whatever reason, I have intertwined the idea of affection and food. (laughs) What happens when this person that you are attached to is calling you to contradict the mission that you have set before you. His mother, his brothers are there. There will be a day where we see that James trusts Jesus because he basically word for word quotes the Sermon on the Mount that he scoffed at. There will be a day where his mother stands and watches her son is crucified. There will be a day where they align with his mission But it's not this day. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him. He said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, that's my brother and my sister and and my mother. Jesus has created a family that is more nuclear than nuclear. And we are bound to it. The Bible talks about what it means for you to be part of the church a lot. But but the primary way, the consistent language of the Bible about what it means for you to be a blood-bought follower of Jesus is that you are his child, which is family language. That you and I are brothers and sisters. That that's family language. That we're bound together as a family. The Bible talks about family All of the time. We're a family. That's why, and look, I love it. It's the new year and we've got new faces in this room and I'm so grateful for your new faces. But inevitably, there's going to be a point where you want to be a member of our church and I'd love for you to be a member of our church because I think our church is the best church in town. I just love this place. I love these people. I've been blessed to pastor them for four years. I get to work with a really talented person. Jared's way more talented than me. But if you're coming here because you're mad at First Baptist or you're upset with BPF. If you want to be a member, you're going to come and you're going to talk to me about what it means to be a member. You're going to talk to Jared. We have this weird sit-down conversation with you eye to eye across the table. We've had it. I've had it with lots of you. And if you're coming from another place because you're upset with him, here's the thing. I don't end other families. That ain't my deal. 
And there's this thing that takes place in some churches, and it's okay that you, you send a letter to let them know that you're breaking up. I don't break up with people for you. I had a girlfriend in the seventh grade. She had a friend call me. It hurt my heart, letting me know that it was over. Break up on your own. But work through that if you want to be part of this family. We love, but more than that, are you functioning as someone who is part of the family of God? Operating in isolation? Or are you living in, in relationship? Are you living out this is just me and Jesus and everything's cool? That's not, that's never going to be okay. Because the moment Jesus calls you to himself, he throws you into a family. Every letter of the Bible written to a church. Be part of a church. And some of you are members, and for whatever reason, you've stepped away from being part. Be part. Serve the church in ways that we give opportunity to serve the church. Serve the children's ministry. Serve the youth ministry. Ask how you can help serve. But that, why? Because we're called to this together. Imagine that you don't believe in Jesus. I mean, if you're showing up on a cold Lake Jackson day, which means it's 60 degrees outside, you probably have some type of relationship with Jesus. Imagine that you don't believe in Jesus. Imagine that you don't believe in God in any way, shape, or form. You are an atheist. It means that that's just not your thing. You're anti-God. Not even anti, you're just whatever. There's nothing. What do you want for your life? Well, I want to make enough to pay for my house. I think a cool boat would be awesome. I'd love to have one of those campers. Maybe a cow. What do you want for the lives of your children? Well, I really want them to have friends. And I would like for them to play sports if they're sporty. And even if they're not sporty, I hope they can carry out the Gatorade. And I would like for them, if they're musically talented, to play musical things in their school. What do you want for them in the future? I want them to have a good job, make lots of money. As a believer in Jesus, what do you want for your life? And how is it any different than what you've just listed off to me? As a believer who may be a parent, what are you doing and what are you not doing that communicates that there is more to life than good jobs and friends and sports? What proactive decisions are we making as the family of God to say that we are the family of God? Blood-bought people 
who have experienced the resurrection of Jesus and who are saying to him, show me who you would have me to be and how you would have me to be that. What's your response to Jesus? Do this with me today. I want you to bow your heads. I want you to hear me say that as a pastor in this community, as a pastor for many of you, I love you. I do. And whenever we begin to talk about hard conversations like alignment, if we're not at the chiropractor, this is really hard to hear. God wants us as His people to be aligning our lives with Him. If you have never trusted in Him, but you hear that you, you, this resonates with you, just know that you've still got today to respond to Jesus. And we can walk through what Scripture says about you trusting in Him. If you're here and you are in relationship with Jesus, but you see that you're out of alignment in regard to your, your, your groups that you're involved in, you've decided to dis- divide yourself from Christian family, just know He's given you today to hear this. If the weight of this text says that your political alignment, whether right, left, up, down is out of line with what Jesus would say, then, then I would encourage you to think through what it means for you to recenter yourself on a crucified, resurrected Savior who believed in setting captives free and undoing oppression. If you've forgotten that Jesus heals, would you just say today, I want to align myself that I believe that Jesus heals sick people, whether that's physically sick, those of us who may have gone through something really hard, that there is healing in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not anywhere else. It's just not. Would we align ourselves with what it means to be a people of God, empowered by God for the purposes of God? And if we've got these little side divots that we keep running in, that's going to be hard. So let's align today while He still gives us today. We trust you, Jesus. If any of you need me, I'm in the back, my back right-hand corner of the room.